Well, man, there, there's some irony as we enter the Christmas season. And by the way, uh, Chris, what a, what a pulpit, man. You, you did a good job not building this thing. But uh, there is a, there's some ironies. We enter the Christmas season, right? When we get right down to what happened 2,000 years ago, uh, it was that Jesus entered the world to bring rest, right? But then leave it to us 2,000 years later to create the least restful holiday in human history. And that's where we find ourselves. And I wonder, though, if that's where you find yourself uh, this season. Um, it's almost impossible, at least at some point even in the season, to not just think, oh, I, I'm not getting the rest that I thought I was going to get. And it's not that you don't desire it, because you do. You desire rest really at all times of the year, but especially at this time of the year. But you've entered a season when that's going to be a commodity for you. And, you know, I was having a convo, uh, and by convo I mean conversation, with uh, a few guys last week uh, at, at Denny's just in case you thought it was all fine dining for Big R here. Uh, it's not. But we, we discussed just how unrestful the holidays are. Well, at the same time, we like have this expectation that they should be. And I don't know where we get that, but we do have an expectation for it. So really what we're going to unpack today as we continue through Ruth is that there is rest Right? There is rest for the human race. There is rest for you. There is rest for me. But it's a rest that we find, actually, as we look into Ruth, by taking risks. And it's by taking risks that God gives us the courage to take, which always lead us back to the person of Jesus Christ. So if you are joining us for the first time today, and, and you wouldn't even identify yourself as a Christian that has entered into that rest with Jesus Christ, what we're going to do is we're going to explore what we mean when we say the word rest, and most specifically, the rest that we're going to see in the book of Ruth, um, and that we're going to understand that, that, that rest for us means a little bit more than just getting some sleep or, or just going on vacation or just vegging on the couch or just binge-watching Netflix, whatever your Sunday's about to look like, right, or spending your weekends furthering your hobby a little bit, but that rest is actually found in a person, right? It's not just an idea. It's not something that allows us just to breathe out and veg out, but it's actually found in a person. It's something we connect to like flesh and blood. And that's what we're going to see what rest is for us today. So for a little recap, uh, if you're just joining us for the first time this morning, we're in Ruth 5, but maybe this is your first time. Up to this point, the book of Ruth has been the story of two widows, two women by the name of Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth who actually moved back to Bethlehem, to this town of Bethlehem, after living 10 years in a place called Moab, which is where uh, Naomi originally moved with her husband before she lost her husband. And so what happens is, as they get back to Bethlehem, and the reason why they left Bethlehem in the first place was because there was a famine in the land. When they get back to Bethlehem, Ruth is looking for work. They need to find food. And Ruth finds work in a grain field that belongs to a man named Boaz, who turns out uh, is a relative of Naomi's. So after this season of just experiencing some unimaginable loss and grief, we see that Naomi and Ruth are back in Naomi's hometown, and they've experienced now some much-needed kindness from the heart and the hands of this fella uh, named Boaz. And this is where we pick up our story today uh, in chapter 3. So I'm just going to read, and we're going to sort of parcel our way through it, so you can follow along as I pick up here, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, and it says this, 
Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, said to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, Ruth replied, all that you say I will do. So let's just stop right there for the moment. Now here's an idea for a marriage proposal that you don't just hear every day. You know, you don't bump into this one every day through your journeys through Bride Magazine, right? That's not one you you come upon. Now call me crazy, right? But this is one of those plans that could go real wrong for Ruth, right? Just looking at it, you know, right at right first glance, right? I mean, creeping up on Boaz in the middle of the night, lying at his feet, right? And then, you know, just waiting to see what he says when he wakes up. I, I mean, you mean like with a heart attack like I would have if I woke up in the middle of the night and some strange woman was lying at my feet? I mean, seriously, Naomi, you know, can't Ruth just meet this dude at Starbucks and hash some of these things out that they're going through? We don't see that here, right? This is not what we see. In fact, we're not really even told if this was like standard practice. We don't even know if this was sort of the custom for the time. But what we do know here is that Naomi's heart was to seek rest for Ruth. And when we say rest, what we mean by that is it's another way of saying that she was seeking a home for Ruth. She was seeking marriage for Ruth. Because look, as an unprotected widow, I mean, Ruth would have been in a real vulnerable position back in this culture if she would have remained unmarried. Things wouldn't have been really good for her. She wouldn't have had a lot of prospects and a lot of opportunities to flourish in that community as an unmarried immigrant woman. So Naomi's desire uh, to see Ruth married is, is good. It's a good desire. And by the way, it's far more serious than just, you know, again, wanting her to be happy and, and you know, see her walk down the aisle in a white gown. It goes way beyond that. She's talking about the way that Ruth would be provided for and taken care for for the rest of her life. So one of the things we learned about Boaz last week in chapter 2 from Pastor Chris was that, man, this dude's not just a relative. He's not merely a relative, but he is a redeemer. And what that means is he was part of the family line of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. And what that meant was that under Jewish law, he was eligible to marry Ruth in order to produce offspring for Ruth's deceased husband, a guy named Malan, which was how family lines and how those inheritances were carried on back then. So I know all you wives are like thinking about your brother-in-laws right now and you're like looking at your husband going, please don't die because I can't really visualize that happening right now. Well, you don't have to worry about it. That was something that happened back then uh, in this particular custom. But what we see here is that Naomi in her care for Ruth has a plan. She has a plan. And so what does she do? Well, she instructs Ruth to to take a bath, put on some perfume, get a little dolled up, go to the threshing floor where Boaz was working. The idea was to wait until 
uh, Boaz goes to bed and then uncover his feet and lay down. Now, I know, man, it's American culture we're talking about that. We're Westerners. We look at that and we go, this is insane. This is crazy. This is nothing like, man, I've been on YouTube. I click on marriage proposals and we see all these nutty, crazy things. I've never seen one like this before. Um, but really, I think what's better for us to understand is what a precarious position that this put Ruth in. Right? What a strange place for her to find herself in. I mean, the last time she trusted a man with her life, he died, right? So you kind of back off and you think, well, what kind of fears must have been going through Ruth's head that night as she was following Naomi's instruction? I mean, what, what kind of courage did it take to actually follow through with these uh, admittedly strange commands that she got from Naomi. I mean, one of the things that we can surmise from this, right, about Ruth was that she was beginning to understand that following God included risk. It included some measure and matter of risk in her life, which for her, in this instant, was being obedient even when the results were unclear, right? And that doesn't mean Ruth was being reckless, she wasn't being reckless, but she was stepping into a risky situation by trusting Naomi to lead and guide her to rest. So that's kind of what we get right as we step into chapter 3 with Naomi instructing Ruth with how to approach Boaz with this very strange and peculiar marriage proposal. Let's pick up in verse 6 as we continue. It says, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, because you have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Verse 11, and now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But he, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Let's stop there. So here's how it all plays out for Ruth as she arrives at the threshing floor to carry out the plan, right? First off, I know what you're thinking. All right, let's just cover some ground here. I know what you're thinking when it said Boaz's heart was merry after he'd eaten and drunk, right? But that word, that word just means that he was satisfied, he was content after a hard day's labor and a good meal. I mean, look, if you could have seen me on Thanksgiving, you would have said, there's a merry dude. All right, uh, not because I was drunk, but because I was deliriously happy with everything that was going on inside my belly at that moment, all right? So that's a little more of kind of what we're seeing with Boaz here. Now, verse 8, what I like about verse 8, now you got, you got to, like, you got to just pause here for a second. What I love about verse 8 is that it's for people who think the Bible is never funny, because it is funny, right? So here's what happens. Boaz hits the sack 
almost literally, right? He lays down on a heap of grain, um, and at midnight, he opens his eyes and is startled to see a woman laying at his feet. All right, now look, another word for startled here would just be he was afraid. He was afraid to which I say, no kidding, dude. No kidding, he's afraid. I mean, I wake up at midnight all the time because my wife has taken over our entire queen-size bed, and I'm teetering on the edge of it, like, you know, holding on for dear life, right? But, you know, all that's happening, but you know what? I'm not startled she's there. Like, I know it's her. I, it's the same woman in my bed every night. You guys should be a little pumped and relieved about that, by the way. But I'm not startled she's there, right? But then what happens is we get this rather lovely exchange of requests and promises between Ruth and Boaz. I mean, obviously, after the poor guy realized he's not having a heart attack because of the strange woman at his feet. Ruth says, as we look down in verse 9, she says, if I can find verses, she says, uh, he says, who are you? She answers, I am Ruth. She says, I am your servant. And then she makes this amazing request. She says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, remember, if we go back to chapter Two uh, verses 12 and 13, remember this prayer that Boaz um, initially prays over Ruth after he comes in contact with her, after he's seen the kindness that she has shown Naomi. Look at this prayer. He prays over her in verse 12. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Verse 13 Then she said, Ruth says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So what Ruth is requesting from Boaz is the answer to Boaz's prayer over Ruth. She's basically saying, hey, I want you to answer that prayer that you prayed over me uh, months ago. And not only that, but she puts herself in the way of being his servant. Whereas before, she was saying, you don't don't even have, there's no reason for you to acknowledge me as your servant. And now she's saying, but I am your servant. I am humbling myself. I am putting myself at your mercy and at your grace. And you know what this is? This is a bold ask by Ruth. This is a bold ask for her. In fact, it doesn't say anywhere that Naomi ever told Ruth to ask Boaz to do what she did. I mean, what did, Ruth, what did Naomi say to Ruth? She said, you know, just get dolled up, you know, uncover his feet, lay and, and wait to see what he says. But she goes a little bit further. She goes a little bit further. But Boaz seems impressed here, doesn't he? He seems overjoyed in verse 10. Because instead of going with her natural inclination uh, of seeking out a younger guy, whether he's rich or whether he's poor, Ruth chose to follow Naomi's customs. She's still following Naomi. She's still being true and faithful to Naomi like she was from the very beginning. So Boaz praises Ruth again. He encourages her. He affirms her as someone who has a reputation now in the community as a worthy woman. And again, Ruth just keeps extending that reputation that she has built up as somebody who is faithful, somebody who has integrity, and somebody who has come deeply under 
the mercy and grace of the Lord as she is still in a very vulnerable and very dependent place in her life. Now, at this point, it kind of feels like, well, you know, we're, we're heading for the Disney storybook ending, but then things kind of take a twist. As we go into verse 12, there's some complications with everything that Boaz starts laying out. He informs Ruth that there is a man nearer of kin than himself who actually has first rights in acting on Ruth's behalf. But he says, if this other man doesn't agree to redeem her, Boaz says, I will. I will redeem you, he says. So a promise is made to Ruth after she steps out in courage, after she boldly asks Boaz to spread his wings over her. Ruth will have a redeemer. She will be given the good thing that she rightly asked for, the good thing that she rightly desired. Let's finish up in verse 14. And it says, So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And in verse 18, she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And that's chapter 3. That's God's word for us. So a couple of things here. Boaz sends Ruth home in the morning before anybody sees her. And he does that as a way to preserve her integrity, to keep her reputation intact because he cares about such things. He's already, he's already name-checked her as a worthy woman, and he wants to keep that reputation uh, uh, firmly surrounding her. Um, and not only that, but he gives her six measures of barley. He gives her some food. He doesn't send her home empty-handed. In fact, when she gets home in verse 17, she tells Naomi that Boaz refused to send her home empty-handed, which is interesting. It's an interesting phrase, considering all the way back in chapter 1, verse 21, remember when Naomi rolled back into town? Remember, and she's just grieving. She's grieving over the loss of her husband, and her two sons, and all of her friends say, oh my gosh, is this Naomi? Is this the, is this the person we remembered who left 10 years ago and is coming back? Well, what, is, what does Naomi say? She says in chapter 121, she says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. But now we see a twist. We see a turn. We see something different now unfolding in her life because God was clearly filling Naomi's emptiness. And it wasn't just, he wasn't just doing it by giving her grain but he was doing it through the boldness of Ruth's request to Boaz. And then we finish the chapter with Naomi telling Ruth, now all you have to do is wait. I need you to wait now. You've done everything I've instructed. You've been faithful. And now you need to wait because Boaz will settle the matter as soon as he can and he will not rest, Naomi says, until he does so. Now, that's a pretty quick glide through Ruth chapter 3. But what do we make of all this? What do we do with this? Naomi begins the chapter by seeking rest 
for Ruth before sending her on what looks like to us uh, kind, of a, kind of a bonkers manhunt to try to get it, right? But what do these verses imply for us as we think about the kind of rest that we seek, that we naturally seek? There's nobody in here that doesn't want rest. Like if I do a poll of everybody in the room and I say, man, would you like a little more rest in your life? Nobody's going to go, you know, I just like disorder and chaos. It's just kind of like my space. I mean, none of you guys are going to say that unless you need help, right? I mean, none of you. Everybody is seeking rest. So what do these verses say to us and about the kind of rest that we seek? Well, I, I think what we see is that following God in terms of how we're looking at Ruth's life, following God includes taking Godly risks. Godly risks. And here's three that I want to I lay out that we see in Ruth that she took. And the first one is this. Ruth stepped out courageously. Ruth stepped out courageously. She stepped out in courage. Even though it may have made very little sense to her. She wasn't familiar with all the Jewish customs, we can imagine. But she steps out in courage. And you know what? It's risky to be courageous. It's risky for you to be courageous. And this kind of leads us to this particular question, uh, which allows you to look back on your Christian experience if you are saved this morning, which is how do you understand the Christian life? Were you taught that God calls us to have courage even when we don't know how it's going to turn out? Have you understood the Christian life to be a life of that? Because here's what happens. Sometimes God opens doors for us, right? He opens doors for us, and what do we do? We hesitate because we want a guaranteed outcome, right? We don't want to take the risk. And sometimes we spiritualize the risk, and, but we pull back and we hesitate against taking the risk because it's not a guaranteed outcome. But here's the question. Whose outcome are we looking for? What's the outcome that we're looking for? And we assume that the outcome that we desire is God's desired outcome for us, right? But that's not what we always see in Scripture. Certainly not what we see in the book of Ruth. But she stepped out courageously. And stepping out in courage means putting yourself at the grace and mercy of God. It doesn't mean being reckless. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But it means stepping out under the grace and mercy of God with the courage that he gives you and he equips you to do that very thing. That's what Ruth is running off of right now. I mean, you gotta think about the courage of Mary and Joseph, right? Remember Mary and Joseph, a couple of kids, you know, engaged to be married, and Mary comes up prego, right? I mean, look, Joseph understands how biology works, right? The kid's not his. The kid is not his, right? So God sends Joseph a message, tells him Mary's pregnancy is supernatural. We believe in the virgin birth here at Substance Church. And that she's still a worthy woman. She's not cheated on him. There's still integrity there. Their relationship is intact. But I don't know. I mean, do you think that our boy Joe had a few doubts as he watched Mary's belly expand over the next nine months? I mean, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I, I'm not that faithful. I don't have that much faith. I, I mean, there would be a few things kind of running through your mind, right? 
But what does Joseph do? I mean, he doesn't write up a prenup for Mary after this. He doesn't do that. What what does he do? He leads Mary courageously. He continues to lead her with courage, even though their future felt dramatically unclear. Certainly his future felt unclear. His future felt unclear. Listen, God will equip you with a courage that will come as you step under his grace and mercy into the unknowns of your life. He's going to be faithful to do it as you take those steps of faith. All of these ordinary, everyday things. You know, whenever we think of stepping out in courage, we always think it's like this massive thing, right? Like, like, I'm, like I'm, I'm juicing up all the entrepreneurs right now because they're like, oh, I want, you know, see, babe, he's telling me to step out in courage. I should do that foolhardy venture. I mean, that's not really what we're talking about. It might be. But you know what, you know what kind of speaks to me a little bit more? Because I don't make all these big, crazy moves all the time. But I'll tell you what I do. I wake up every morning and I engage in all the ordinary things in my life that still take a heck of a lot of courage, right? Things like marriage, things like parenting, things that don't go good all the time, right? Things like ministry, things like your career, things that we wake up every morning, roads that we walk down every day that are painful and uncertain, that sometimes, many times, okay, all the time, are foggy and unclear. It takes steps of courage to go into those ordinary things that God has given us in our lives under his grace and mercy. It takes courage to do that. But you know what? That's the call. That's the call for us, is to step out in courage when things are unclear. That was the call for Ruth. Secondly, Asking for the right thing. Asking for the right thing. Ruth asked for the right thing. And you know what? It's bold. It takes boldness to pray for the right thing. It's bold to ask God, listen, to give you more of him than more of his blessings. Do you guys follow me with that? Let me just phrase it a different way. It takes boldness to ask God for God. Because you know what Ruth was doing? Ruth was asking Boaz for Boaz, is what she was doing. Well, what does a prayer, what does a prayer even look like like that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, it looks something like Psalm 42, and there's probably a hundred other psalms that I could have gone to with this. But I like Psalm 42. This is what the psalmist says. He says, "As a deer pants, think of a deer now panting for flowing streams." So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And then he finishes by saying this, when shall I come and appear before God? So do you get the sense there with the psalmist? You get the sense what's going on in his life? With everything that he might need and require in his life, who is he going after? Who's he looking to quench that thirst? Do you think that guy didn't have material needs? Of course he had material needs. But he's going to the thing of which he wants those other things to come out of, right? What's the source? He's sourcing it with that. He's saying, God, I need you to quench that thirst. I mean, our prayers can so easily resemble Amazon wish lists, right? Some of you guys have Amazon wish lists. 
My wife's always trying to get me to fill out my Amazon wish list, you know. I'm like, baby, surprise me. Can you just surprise me? I'd like to be surprised. But our, but, our, but our prayer life can be reduced to Amazon wish listiness. Now, hold on. Are we supposed to ask God? Are we supposed to put our requests and our supplications before him? Of course. Of course we are. That's a good thing. But I would, I would love it if we could stand back and sort of look at the pattern and the flow and, and sort of the, the shape of our prayers and what they tend to look like and what we tend to fall back into when we're coming before the Lord. God, just give me what I want. You know, if I'm really being honest, if I really were able to sort of, you know, kind of carve my prayers down to their bare bones, and I was able to sort of present you with a document and say, Ronnie, tell me what your prayers really look like. It would be, God, would you just deliver what I want? Would you, just, would you just Amazon Prime, one click, next day me, that thing that I want? Would you just please do that for me? But if we ask God for more of God, you know what happens? We take the answer to that prayer into every situation that might arise. Because none of the items on your Amazon wish list are going to help you when fill in the blank. They're not going to help. They're, they're not going to help you. What's going to help you if your parent is sick? I got a guy at Sub Ash whose parent is sick. He's really sick right now. Would it be a great thing for all of us to say, hey, you know what, man? I know you've been wanting that bike. I just say you start praying for that and then just see what God does with your pops down the line. What are we praying for? What are we asking for? How is that going to help you when you have a sick parent? How is that going to help you when you have a kid that is out? How's that going to help you when you've come to the determination that you have a kid that, after all, after all your efforts, doesn't know Jesus? After all the youth group doesn't know Jesus, what are you going to do then? What's the prayer then? The prayer is going to be when I come before the living God, will he quench the thirst that I have for him now? That's a good place to be in, by the way. It's a good place to find yourself in. Ruth asked for the right thing. And you know what? God has enough grace in our lives that he's still there when we ask for the wrong things. Because we ask for the wrong things all the time. And that's okay. He teaches us in those moments. So this is not to throw you into despondency because you're looking at your prayer list going, oh boy, oh boy. That's okay. God works through all of our lists, doesn't he? So prayer, uh, Ruth stepped out in courage. She asked for the right thing finally. She waited in hope. She waited in hope. She still had to wait. Oh, the W word. Oh, just the most cursed word in the Christian language, isn't it? Wait. Don't you hate it when the guy up here is just telling you to wait? And he always does it like he never has to wait. I can throw you guys out a little bit of a list of all the things I'm waiting for. Things that I haven't gotten answers for. Things that I've gotten answers for because I'm waiting. Like, hey, buddy boy, there's the answer. You're waiting. That's the answer. Isn't it funny to think that God never doesn't answer your prayer? Well, I'm just waiting. That's the answer. 
That's the answer right now. You're, you're waiting. That's his answer for you. Ruth had to wait. God calls us to wait, which is how he does these things. Listen, it's how he tests our faith. It's how he develops patience in us. It's how he builds endurance in us. It's how he teaches us to not lean on our own understanding. Ruth didn't have understanding. She didn't know what was going to happen next. But again, Ruth wasn't just merely waiting, was she? Ruth was waiting in hope of what? Of Boaz's promise. It wasn't just blind hope. It wasn't just empty faith. It was waiting in hope of Boaz's promise. And you know what waiting does for us? It surfaces things in our heart, doesn't it? It surfaces a hurried or a hopeful heart in all of us. Most of the time, it's a hurried heart. You know, because it's one thing to say, like, man, I will, I will trust you, Lord. I'm having a great day. Breakfast was fabulous. I will trust you today, Lord. But you know what the question is for us in that? It's how are you waiting? How are you waiting? Do you continue to walk with God while you wait on him? Or do you just like scurry around doing your own thing, hoping that someday the big guy's going to deliver the goods that you have requested so that you can say, well, there is a God then because I got what I wanted. That's not what we're seeing here in Ruth. When we read Psalm 62, 1 through 2, the psalmist writes, I think it's David, he says, for God alone, for who? Well, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation, he says. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, my protection, basically. And then he says this, I shall not be greatly shaken. Does that mean he wasn't shaken like this? No, it means he was greatly shaken. But there's something more important that, that we are driving at that God is trying to make unshakable. Ruth could wait in hope because she had a redeemer to settle the matter, right? Do you believe God is in the process of settling your matters? I mean, do you believe that? Do you believe he's that good? Because most of the time, you know how he settles your matters? He settles them through long, agonizing seasons of waiting. Gosh, sometimes it'd be nice to be in one of those churches where they just tell you everything's awesome all the time. But that's how he does it because that's what we see in every story in Scripture. But you know what's happening in that? Listen. He's working to settle something more important than the matters of your life. What matters to him is settling your heart. And you know what? You don't know what. But you know who. That's all of us. That's characterized in the life of Ruth. So as we close, let's go back as we looked at the beginning of the chapter. Naomi was seeking rest for Ruth. And then at the end, she tells Ruth that Boaz will not rest until Ruth is redeemed. Because the matter being settled in Ruth's life was not whether she had more food, but was whether she was going to be redeemed or not. If you seek your rest in Christ, you will find it. 
Because God didn't rest until he settled the matter of your sin. And he did that by sending a redeemer to the cross to pay for it. Where else do you look to find rest? Where else? Because you are looking somewhere. I'm looking somewhere. And you know what? There are places, after all. There are, there are those places that you fall back into when you're grappling and you're reaching and you're wanting. But they rarely include risk because they're usually driven by our flesh rather than our faith. Okay, now let me make a little disclaimer here. Ronnie, are you saying that we work for our rest? Is that what I'm hearing? I mean, you're hearing that i got to re-preach the entire sermon right now if you're hearing that. But is that what you mean by risk? Don't we find rest by the work that Christ earned for our rest? Yes. But God leads us. Now, I need you to listen. God leads us to risk because we don't find rest without trust. That's why the Christian life demands risk. Because it's a life modeled by Christ who courageously entered. What did he do? He entered a hostile world. He boldly asked his father, not my will, but your will. And he endured the cross while waiting in hope for our redemption. The life of Christ was a life of trust that included the greatest risk. Well, you might say, yeah, man, but God knew. He knew how it was going to end for Jesus. And he doesn't know how it's going to end for you. The risks God calls you to take always lead you back to the feet of your Redeemer, who is your rest, who is your peace. Let's pray. God, thank you once again as we step through this, this book of Ruth, Lord, that we see, we see the life of Christ so clearly modeled for us. Lord, we know that we're risk-adverse people. We know that we are constantly trying to assemble a life that allows us to not step out in courage, that allows us to pour into those things and to ask for those things that drive our comfort and allow us not to have to wait for anything. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a church that would come into a deeper understanding of what it means to find our rest in the risk that you provide us the courage to take, Lord, as we step through a life that clearly is going to lead us down unknown paths. And clearly, if Christ were on those paths, clearly if the disciples found themselves on those paths, clearly as we go through the Old Testament and see all of the men and women that were people of God, and you led and you, you encouraged to walk down roads of which they saw no end, it's not going to be any different for us. And yet we see we see the great reward that comes to us when we step out in courage. And Lord, we become a church 
that is asking you for more of you and is asking that you will sanctify us, that you will draw us more deeply into the image of Christ by the time spent waiting for him in hope. Or don't let us leave here without prayerfully considering where we're at in these areas and that you again would encourage us as you continue to equip us and that we can be a community that helps each other down those roads and in these seasons and encourages us to be courageous and walks alongside of us to help each other do that. God, we pray that the lessons we learned this morning would be embedded deep in our hearts. And thank you, Lord, that as we fall so short of these areas, you give us so much grace as you're growing us in these things. You give us so much mercy. All of us today are struggling in all of these areas. None of us has any of these things down. And God, you are with us. You love us. You take delight in us. You are walking beside us. You give us the time to grow because you're the one that produces the growth by your spirit. Do that for us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.